HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. On July 11th, we lost an American culinary icon, Marion Cunningham, the voice of the modern Fanny Farmer cookbooks. Marion Cunningham continued to inspire new waves of modest cooks to explore their kitchens. She was not a chef. She was a home cook with a passion for food. Marion became serious about cuisine after studying with James Beard in the early 70s. Assisting with his classes, she absorbed the lessons and refined her techniques, but remained comfortably rooted in the home kitchen. This combination of technical know-how and unpretentious appeal made Marion the perfect modern voice of Fanny Farmer, which was the Boston Cooking School go-to textbook in the 19th century. In her revision of the Fanny Farmer cookbook, she provided straightforward, practical recipes for delicious American cuisine. In addition, Marion authored the Fanny Farmer Baking Book, Cooking with Children, The Supper Book, Learning to Cook with Marion Cunningham, always emphasizing the basics and encouraging beginners. She was a regular contributor to gourmet and food, wine, food and wine magazines and wrote a weekly column for the San Francisco Chronicle and the Los Angeles Times. She appeared on the PBS show Baking with Julia, yes, Julia Child. Marion Cunningham was 90 years old. She will be missed. Another person who baked with Julia Child on the TV program and is fast becoming a culinary icon herself, but is quite alive and well and kicking home, I'm glad to say, is my guest today, Alice Medrich. In the culinary world, Alice's name has become synonymous with desserts, and particularly chocolate. She's often been referred to as the first lady of chocolate. And it is said that she does extraordinary things with chocolate. She is recognized, and I quote, as a genius in baking and pastry arts, twice winning the James Beard Foundation Award for Cookbook of the Year. 
She's a businesswoman as well who had a chocolate company of her own. We'll hear more about that. And she is a consultant with uh, chocolate companies and chocolate entrepreneurs. She has written eight cookbooks. As I said, she's won many awards for those books. And her, her brand new book, her most recent book, is called Sinfully Easy Delicious Desserts. Easy. Now, this easy desserts is not synonymous with Alice Medrich. Okay? <laughs> but we will, we will get to that new title of that new book shortly. And Alice, I hear you laughing in the back. I'm glad. <laughs> Hi, and thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Linda. Thanks for having me. I love your introduction. I love to follow Marion Cunningham, who, oh. will, who has been missed these many years during her illness, and especially now that yes. we've really lost yeah. her. But always elegant and charming, I have always, to say. Always, yeah. always. Uh, so tell I mean, you, the first lady of chocolate. I love that. I mean, a little better than queen of chocolate. Uh, tell our listeners um, the story about how you really got into the whole chocolate thing. I'm, and I'm going to preface it by saying, so I can put it in, in terms that you might not credit yourself with so much, but Alice is credited in large part for introducing Americans to the chocolate truffle. And now take it away. Tell us, how did you get into the whole chocolate thing? Well, first of all, I have to say that the whole chocolate thing, when you say it that way, was a really different thing when I got into it. And, you know, we're talking about the 1970s, and I, I, I don't want to make this a really long story, but I had the fantastic opportunity to go and have a, a post-grad year in Paris in 1970. Um, so. In the early 70s. Whatever. <laughs> um, yes. And so, you know, for me, I had to go to France. And I spent that year uh, learning c- cooking and shopping for food and learning French and just absorbing what it was like to live in this amazing food place. And I discovered one of the first things I tasted was a homemade chocolate truffle. And it didn't come from a patisserie or, a, or, or any kind of, you know, commercial shop. It was homemade for me by my landlady. And it was to someone who had always loved chocolate and grew up on Hershey bars. It was this revelation. It was like tasting a little tiny, bittersweet, pure, smooth, wonderful chocolate poem. Hmm. Um, And I came back to Berkeley and where where we lived, and I went to graduate school. And in the meantime, um, some things had happened here. Chez Panisse had opened um, a couple years before down the street, and there was, when we came back here, a little French delicatessen charcuterie across the street. And I had asked my landlady for that recipe when I came home. I thought she would give it to me, and she did. And I worked it over, tried to get it to taste like hers, tried to figure out what she really meant by her little French scrawl on a piece of paper. And I walked into that charcuterie one day with a handful of these truffles, and I said, I make these chocolate truffles. Do you want to buy them? And deep breath, they said yes. (laughs) So while I finished graduate school, I started making chocolate truffles, and I eventually, uh, for an increasingly passionate group of customers who were coming in there for these hand-cured hams and, you know, pâtés and all of that kind of thing, and I started to develop a repertoire of other chocolate desserts that I was teaching myself, but also every year I'd go back to France and do a year at the École de Note. So I was a home cook, um, and in a way I still think of myself that way, who developed uh, a, a repertoire of more sophisticated and complex desserts, self-taught, um, um, 
aided a little bit by these, you know, week-long sessions at, um, at, a, at a professional pastry school. So that was the beginning. But I have to say that when we talk about, you know, my focus then <clears throat> was more European-style chocolate desserts, which meant a lot more taste of dark chocolate and a lot less sweetness. Because American chocolate desserts, American, all American desserts back then were very, very, very sweet, very sugar-driven. And the chocolate, chocolate and the chocolate would be people would just go to their cabinets uh, or the grocery store cabinets and just grab a bar of Baker's chocolate. Well, Not there really were only attention. one or two right. brands in the right. in the grocery store then, and most American desserts were made exactly with those squares of unsweetened chocolate. So what happened in the next couple of decades? Um, definitely promoted by me, by, by example, was increasingly a use of bittersweet chocolate, a nicer quality chocolate, actually, a smoother quality chocolate, the way Europeans, Europeans were using eating quality, nibbling quality chocolate to make their desserts. Mm-hmm. And I certainly did that. And over those decades, you could see the, the, um, the, the um, influence of that when you went to restaurants and ate those flourless and nearly flourless chocolate torts and all and chocolate souffle cakes, and you started to see these desserts in food magazines. These were the desserts of Julia Child and Simone Beck and those you know, other people bringing French-style things here, but they weren't commercially available, I think, very much at all until I started doing that. And it had a huge influence. It was just like the right place at the right time. Right. Well, that, it's, it's interesting because um, you say the right place at the right time. Uh, uh, Chocolate itself took on this this you know this runaway kind of um, success and and that was actually I think we have to say within the last ten years mm, um, 10, as far 20. as types of twenty. I would say that chocolate in 1997 started yeah um, a huge change shift seismic shift in what our understanding and interest in chocolate. Mm-hmm. Well, then you went on yeah. to found a chain of chocolate stores called Cocolat. Yes. Correct. Yes. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. What was it? Well, they weren't just chocolate truffles, right? Uh, not just chocolate truffles. It, the the shop was dedicated to cho- mostly chocolate desserts and chocolate truffles. And since it was mine, I could define it any way I liked. So it was French or it wasn't French. I was doing things that Americans were not quite yet accustomed to then. I mean, things that we take for granted today. The you know the flourless chocolate torts and the chocolate nut torts and the the sort of complex multi layered. French gâteau based on genoise and splashed with real liquor and crushed, you know, caramelized nuts and real buttercream based with egg. Um, just all of that European repertoire that we see all over the place today and chocolate truffles, which Americans didn't know about. Americans right. mostly hadn't tasted much chocolate mousse either. Hmm, so it was really true. a different time, very much a different time. Also, I did desserts that weren't chocolate because, as I said, this was my shop. I could do whatever I wanted. <laughs> Um, I also did lots of brownies because, as I said, it was my shop, and although it was mostly driven by a sort of a French, you know, sensibility, it was my shop, and I could do what I wanted, and I did. That's right. Who doesn't love a brownie? When, as I said, the desserts, as you described, many of them, we're not talking easy. These were these were well there worth, were a lot well of worth very the money. Complex yeah. things, and my first book embodied that um, desserts that had you know four or five or six interior re- recipes and might take a home cook several days to make real project kind of desserts for a home cook. That was pure desserts. It was pure desserts. No, your first no, one? that was cocola. Oh, cocola, right? The book cocola that came out in nineteen ninety or ninety one. Ah. At the end, when I sold my shop, when I sold my business. 
I pretty much wrapped it up with that, which was my first book and my first cook, uh, James Beard cookbook of the year award. Right. Well, you went on to um, to write several of the books, and each of I can s- sort of see a trend happening. Yeah. Let's say in the last <laughs> few years, but and you also were a contributor to um, to other books, the Baker's Dozen. I, I yes. love your entries yes. in that, um, and have used them. I must say they're not that difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but it's sort of a go-to, you know, the, the go-to standard when you really want to do something um, right and, and well. Alice's recipes, for my listeners, I will tell you, it's, you're going to get the right information, good information. Um, and when I say I see a trend, because you had a, a very popular book and a, a, an award-winning book, the, the Chewy Gooey Crispy Crunchy Melt-in-Your-Mouth Cookies book. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I see, you know, and as I see, not a trend so much, but I see that you went from the more elaborate desserts to coming down to things that people want to make and eat right away. You and, know, and can, in short can, order. Yes. yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it makes total sense to me, although it looks maybe peculiar to an outsider. When I sold my business back in 1990-something, um, I became a home cook again, and I started to realize that for a home cook and entertainer, it was not so easy to make those huge, complex desserts. Um, when I had a pastry shop myself, I could wander around that kitchen and pick out all the elements. I could grab a sponge cake from here and some caramelized nuts from there and some real buttercream from there. And just and some chocolate glaze and melt this, you know, put that together, spread this on, and have something very elaborate. At home, I would have had to start and make each one of those things. And, of course, I have the skills to do that in pretty short order, but I suddenly realized I didn't feel like doing that. <laughs> um, so increasingly, I started to think more and more of the home cook, who's maybe had a more limited kitchen, more limited time, Busy, working people, maybe new cooks, and especially with this last book, Sinfully Easy. I'm thinking about people who might even be new cooks um, or who might have demanding jobs and not a lot of time. I'm thinking of young people coming up. I was looking a little bit through the lens of my 23-year-old daughter who has a demanding, uh, demanding job, small kitchen, sophisticated taste, but not a lot of time and um, not a lot of skills yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and you actually um, said something that that really spoke to to me and and a lot of my friends is that people who are excellent cooks. I mean, there is a difference. People have to understand there is a difference between cooks and bakers. You said that right. <laughs> and people who cook and can put on, as you you said, or you yourself had said, people who can put on elaborate meals. But when it comes to baking, which is more of a Science. It's more chemi- You know the the chemistry one on one kind of. You have to follow the directions. You have to get. You have to, the, you have to get the, the proportions yes. right. Right. Many really wonderful cooks and instinctive, intuitive cooks just don't really like to follow anything very precisely. Mm-hmm. So I also wanted this book to be a book of desserts that would resonate with the home, with the cook mentality as opposed to the baker pastry chef mentality. And that was a little challenge for me because I had to set aside some of my. Um, love of all that precision and all that detail. I wanted to pick things where the precise measurements were not as important, um, maybe even where there wasn't so much baking. A lot of the desserts in this book are assembled as though you, the way you assemble a composed salad. You know, well, and lovely elements with different textures and flavors that go together. So that once you make it, you may never have to open the book to that page again because you got it. Yeah. You know? Well, we're going to talk more about some of the specific recipes when we come back after a short break. 
White Oak Pastures is a 146-year-old multi-generational family farm that works in cooperation with nature to produce artisan meats that is safe, healthy, nutritious, and good to eat. Without fail, we ensure that our production practices are economically practical, ecologically sustainable, and that the animals are always humanely treated. We never falter in our determination to conduct our business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. We are back, and we're talking with, I'm talking with Alice Medrich, uh, the first lady of chocolate, as she's called, and author, a cookbook author of eight different books, and her most recent one is called Sinfully Easy Delicious Desserts. Quicker, smarter recipes. Quicker and smarter. I like that. <laughs> uh, and I have to say that it it is such a user-friendly book, and and the photos are great. You can see what it is you're making. They're beautiful photographs. And as I was, I am a bit of a baker, I have to say. And reading through this book, I, I felt liberated. And I immediately found something I wanted to run to the kitchen and bake. And it, the, the one bowl cake, the one bowl cake with a nice lemon curd fluffy filling or, you know, with a little whipped cream in with the lemon curd. I mean, you gave me ideas to adapt and, and use differently as well. You really did it. Um, and I have to tell the listeners, too, that there is a little photograph on the cover of the book. It's not so little, really, but it that just makes your mouth drool. And it is a melted chocolate sandwich, like a grilled cheese sandwich. It's a chocolate sandwich. <laughs> now, that certainly is something that everyone could put together, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, Lots of flexibility in this book. I also think that cooks like to know that you could change this and change that and, you know, come up with your own ideas. I gave lots of ideas and, and, and variations to, to inspire people. And it's true. Um, there are lots of little tips, um, tips in the beginning on, you know, how to, how to make things. But then, you know, like, what do you do when you have a lot of, what was it, one thing? Oh, gingerbread, right. What do you do when you have a lot of ginger, when you have gingerbread? What can you do with gingerbread other than just serve gingerbread, right? Those are those are very good tips. I like that. Yes, I like the ideas. I mean, there's ten things to do with ripe strawberries. A whole passel of things to do with the gingerbread. If you ever, if 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 you don't eat it up, which is unlikely because it's awfully good. Um, <laughs> you know, things to do with yogurt. Things to do with a bar of chocolate. Just off the cuff kind of things that people might not think about or might not even know about. And fruit. You incorporate a lot of fruit, which, of course, at this time of year, here we are at the height of the Perfect, of the yeah. season. Yeah, you've got so many different things to do with fruit, and I I like that that you don't. It's not just um, high sugar, you know, dense puddings or or um, chocolates, but a lot of fruit as well. Yeah, one thing that's been consistent throughout my career, I think, is that I want to taste the ingredient more than the sugar. You know, the sugar is there to enhance, and of course, desserts are sweet. But I really do. If I want to, if I'm cooking with apples, I want to taste the apples. If I'm working with chocolate, I really want to taste that chocolate. Well, back to chocolate. I noticed in um, a couple of the desserts that do incorporate chocolate that you give specific um, uh, 
percentages of yeah. the um, of the cocoa. Tell no. me, yeah, um, yeah, the, that's, the chocolate. I think that's extremely important. One of the hugest big shifts in our chocolate world today happened about you know in the last twenty years. I think since the since the since the founding of Scharfenberger in nineteen ninety seven, the first American company to put cacao percentage on the label. Before that, only people who had been eating or, or working with European chocolate had a clue about that. And what that did is it caused everybody else to do the same thing, to put that cacao percentage. It's just the percentage of the pure chocolate in the bar. You know, the higher the percentage, the lower the sugar. That's the shorthand way of it. But what happened at the same time is that companies started making bars with higher and higher cacao percentages. You know, less and less sugar, which is all very wonderful and delicious. And you could sort of choose your octane when you go to nibble a bar of chocolate. But it also created a certain amount of chaos when it came to cooking with the chocolate, because even if the bar said bittersweet, some bittersweets have 70% cacao and some have only 55. Mm -hmm. And they really don't um, substitute perfectly for each other in recipes. So, you know, one of my little hobby horses in the last 10 years is to try to get all cookbook authors and all magazines to publish recipes and, and be more specific when they're calling for the chocolate ingredient and give us an idea, you know, what was this recipe developed with? You know, what's the highest percentage you can use before the, the texture or the flavor starts to suffer in some way? When I say the texture and the flavor stuff, I was going because I was going to ask. Well, if someone didn't have that particular um, percent, call co- a chocolate with that percentage of cacao in it, and they went and used another kind of chocolate, it's not that the recipe won't turn out, but it just won't have the same texture. Or well, sometimes you know, sometimes you if you substitute a much higher percentage uh, chocolate in a recipe that wasn't built for it, you're actually going to get something drier and crumblier, or you know. You know, mousses that are that are kind of gritty and and curdle, or sauces that curdle even torts and cakes that um, that just aren't as nearly as good as they should be. Mm-hmm. So I really recommend that people stick, especially now since all of the bars in the grocery store have labels on it. It's not that hard to find. Um, you know, these different percentage bars. Um, yeah, I, I I think that more and more we see. In fact, whole. Not aisle, if not an aisle, but a whole section of shelves devoted to yeah. different yeah. chocolates, which is I, yeah, I mean most good switch. grocery stores have many um, many choices for chocolate for you know in, in the bittersweet semi sweet category mm-hmm. um, so I really think I think it's important for all of us who publish to to disclose that kind of information, and I think it's a help for the reader and a help for the cook yes absolutely i I agree with you. Uh, it, you were asked if um, what was new for you in this book, and you mentioned breaking the book up by texture. That's the, my cookie book was broken up by texture. Oh, that was yes. the chewy gooey, yes. right? The yes. chewy yes. gooey cookbook, right? Yes. Well, that yes. was that, that was, was that, that was fun. That every chapter was a different texture for cookies. That was wonderful, and I, yeah. that was really a fun new way to look at cookies, and also a way to. To acknowledge that people do have texture preferences or maybe texture moods. <laughs> um, Absolutely, I, you know, yeah. there are some cookies that are just better when they're when they're crisp and crunchy. You yeah. know, and they wouldn't call it a ginger snap if it didn't have a little snap to it, right? <laughs> that's that's great. Um, the in this book, it is um, when, and I say perhaps a bit of a departure for you in the fact that. Um, they are 
not so much, um, well, I mean, everything is, there are baking, the, you know, desserts that are baked, but many of them are, you don't even have to bake. You don't have to you don't, put no, anything in Some there. of them just come from ingredients in your pantry. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have a pretty well-stocked pantry, and I give you a list at the beginning, you can get up from your chair and decide you want to have dessert and have it in 15 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever. A few of the recipes that do require baking, it actually takes less time to make the batter than to preheat the oven. Well, and, and of course, with giving people an understanding of chocolate, um, I'm sure that some people would just be happy putting a chocolate bar of chocolate on the table as well. Exactly, <laughs> with a little dried fruit and some nuts. I mean, that's often dessert at my house. I mean, and it all stemmed from the fact that there were so many years when so many different chocolates were coming out, and you wanted to taste those chocolates. So if anyone was over for dinner or after dinner or in the middle of the afternoon, the chocolate would come out on a cutting board, and we'd break it up with a little paring knife and nibble it and, you know, maybe go on to eating it with some nuts and fruits and so forth. And it, I realized after a while that that really is a perfectly wonderful dessert. It's a conversation starter. It's something you can do with the leftover wine from dinner, or you can have a dessert wine. Um, I mean, I think that's another one of the trends now is that we use chocolate in a lot of different ways. And there's a great yes, crossover and between sweet and savory. That's right. And um, and it and also brings to mind something that you mentioned in your book, um, the fellow who helped you out with your cooking classes and that he made a chocolate mousse that you have in your book, the recipes in mm-hmm. your book. Marvelous. Uh, and he finished it off with some ground black pepper. Yes. Yes. I love how... We're now experimenting with different flavors, as you said, the crossover yeah. between savory and sweet, but, and then how some of these flavors interact, such as the pepper on the chocolate or the salt. The pepper on the chocolate is wonderful, and the great thing about that recipe is if that is like too modern or too far out for you, you simply, all you simply have to do is not do it. That's right. Because it's a topping, you know? Because the chocolate, mousse is, still, right? the chocolate mousse is still going to taste great. Right? Absolutely great, yeah. And Absolutely. salt. Salt has been... Salt, yes, yep. we're using a lot more salt. I think in a way, it kind of... We're eating so much more in, intense dark chocolate. But I think the salt sometimes is just a way of opening, opening up that flavor a little bit. Um, we're using herbs and spices. We're making desserts with olive oil. Chocolate and olive oil can be a wonderful combination, for example. And what I tried to do in this book, too, is, is do a lot of crowd pleasers, but also have enough modern stuff in there for people who are really paying attention to the trends and interested in tasting things in a new way. Um, you know, things like um, olive oil on vanilla ice cream, a chocolate tort with olive oil. Mm-hmm. I love um, I love that, and I love that you bring that up. You have that the chocolate tort that is made. So you made it. The, you developed the recipe for somebody in the olive oil industry, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I mean, chocolate is a fruit. Olives are a fruit. Um, it's it just it's just a surprise. Also, I mean, I think our palates are a little bit more ready for unusual pairings. Years ago, I do remember that there was some initiative going around for healthier desserts made with olive oil instead of saturated fat from butter. And what the recommendation used to be is to choose a really light, almost flavorless olive oil. The idea was to use the olive oil because it was healthy, but let's try to hide the flavor. <laughs> but we're in a whole different place now, and I, I realize this, we're not talking about olive oil here, but I, I just have to say this. Now we love the flavor of olive oil. 
So, for example, I have an olive oil pound cake, which is probably the easiest pound cake in the world and one of the best in this book. And I say, you know, choose a delicious olive oil, you know, with lots of flavor. It can be a robust one or not. But it is about the olive oil flavor. It's not about trying to bury that flavor and mm-hmm. just use the ingredient as a health ingredient. Uh-huh. Well, when you, um, you started out with chocolate and... Uh, and you haven't abandoned chocolate, but then you, you've gone into more just in the general desserts and baking. Were you always a baker? Um, yeah, I think from the beginning I've always been interested because that's part of desserts and because I like the detail and I like all the, the little things that make a difference um, in how you mix things or how you measure things, how you put things together. I'm, I'm a little bit of a geek even though, <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm, I'm kind of nerdy about this stuff. My dad was an engineer. And so I'm not afraid of, of all the little complexities. Uh-huh. And baking has a lot of them. That's true. And, and then to have the, uh, the courage to experiment in baking is not an easy thing because uh, as those of us who bake know, you can end up with a lot of flops. Oh, you can, and I do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's part of the process. I mean, for people who love what they do, the process is, you know, it's, it's part of the I'm mixing metaphors like crazy, but it's part of the destination. Going there is part of the destination. <laughs> um, and the process is part of what I love about about what I do. Yeah, excellent. And, you know, mistakes sometimes yield some amazing insights. That's true. That's true. Well, thank you so much for introducing us to the truffle, because from there, look where we've come. I mean, we have just, <laughs> you know, we have, we've gone off on a super chocolate uh, uh, tangent, I think, in, yeah. in this country, yeah. an adventure, yes, an adventure. Thank you, and and um, I think, and I think we should all thank you for um, starting that off, at least on the truffles back in the seventies. And thank you again for joining you, me Linda. on my show. What a pleasure. This has been a taste of the past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.